0: Hello and welcome to Android Bytes, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddock, and each week I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Rahman, diving deep into the world of Android. And this time we're diving deep into the world of Esper, because I have one fellow Esper uh, team member next to me, and we have another fellow Esperite. Esperer? I'm not sure what we call each Esperanian
1: other. is what we usually say.
0: Esperenian Okay, I like that. It's kind of fun. Sounds like an alien from Star Trek. And Michelle, would you like to introduce our guests?
2: Yeah, thanks, David. So as David mentioned, we have two very special guests. And of course, every guest who comes on the show is a very special guest. But these are even specialer to us because they are our colleagues. We have Nikhil Punatil and John West on the show today. I'd like to introduce both of you to Android Bytes. Thanks for joining.
3: So uh, I'll I'll start. I'm Nikhil Punatil. I run Esper's Innovation Lab. So that's where we do all the fun stuff and just go nuts with Android and Yeah, everything technology.
1: John West, I help run the Esper device targets. So we grab new things coming in and see what changes we need to make and make sure everything's working with the devices and can be provisioned just fine. Thanks for uh, having us.
3: Yeah, happy to be here. And so
0: I guess it's fair to say both of you on a regular basis are answering the question, can we do this? Is it possible?
1: (laughs) And yes, yes, we can. (laughs)
2: <laughs> can we build it yes you're all bob the builders here and y'all were doing this even before you joined esper so where did you guys come from what were you doing before esper that related to android development
3: yeah so i started messing with android really a long time ago around the time i think the first version of android that i played around with was uh, gingerbread with my first android device it was a it was a really crappy Samsung Galaxy MP4 player. Like Ooh. It was one of the one of the iPod Touch competitors. Oh, was it the Galaxy Player? The Galaxy Player 4.2. That was my first Android device. Seems like ages ago. But also that device never got any updates. It was shunned by the community. And that's really what led to me trying to see, okay, I want this to be better than it is. Because getting a new device really at that point wasn't an option, so you got to deal with what you have. And that's when I started just like checking out the community, see what was going on, looking at CyanogenMod, which was a huge thing back then, rooting. In fact, one of the weird things that I ended up learning a lot about was edits, which is essentially compiled Java code for Android. And working with that and like adding mods to your OS through Smiley mods, it's, it was a pretty interesting time. And it grew from there to me building Android from source, building unofficial builds of CyanogenMod for the devices I owned, to me joining the Carbon ROM team as a maintainer and eventually a core team member. I made my way through the community and I finally found home at Esper.
2: I got to say, I don't envy the things you guys had to do back then to modify apps. Smalley editing, Smalley is a pain to read. I'm so glad there are tools like JetX now that actually convert that into readable Java code. And like JEB decompiler is so much better decompilation reverse engineering tools these days. Oh, absolutely. So what about you, John? What did you do prior to joining Esper?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, You guys are going to hate me, but probably start way back with Windows Mobile. Moved in to Android when the HTC One came out and HTC Hero came out after that. Pretty much started on my own for a while there. Did a bunch of stuff and then started on Team Bliss, just as that project was being brought to light. And soon after that, became interested in Android x86. So that's building Android for PC hardware. Moving into the realm of taking things where no man has gone before. And seeing how far we can get it going. That ended up going on from 2013 to present. It's still going. Under new management now, new development. So we have a bunch of developers that are working on that project while I'm working for Esper here. And yeah, that's pretty much my uh, experience. I specialize in the x86 PC hardware stuff, uh, melding the worlds of Linux and Android into one. And that's where I get my kicks. So... How I fit into Esper here is we get in all these devices, POS devices, and they might have goals to be on a newer version of Android. We can simply bring them up, get them to work, and make them provision fine over OTA using new version Android, which are always updated thanks to our foundation project. And yeah, make the customers
0: happy. Nicely plugged. Yeah, so you <laughs> both
2: come from very different Android hacking backgrounds. Like on the one hand, we have John who's delved a lot of work with x86 hardware, which I think is pretty rare in the Android community because most Android AOSP engineers kind of deal with ARM devices like Nikhil did. And so like, if you want to bring Android, Android to, to niche hardware, you know, you, you're going to need a lot of expertise in compiling Android, modifying Linux, reverse engineering binaries, doing all sorts of just hacky things to get Android up and running on a device where it either wasn't meant to run or you're trying to run a vanilla flavor of Android on a device that originally shipped with a heavily proprietary version with heavy modifications to the kernel. So there's all sorts of different considerations you need to make based on the base device you're trying to modify and bring Android onto. And it's far from easy. And I'm sure, like, by the end of this episode, you'll appreciate just how much work has to go into actually bringing Android onto a device that it wasn't originally running on. Or, you know, it was running something else Android-based So I kind of want to start out with just some basic terminology. So this episode, we mentioned device bring-ups. What does it mean to do a device bring-up?
1: Device bring-up pretty much starts with either A, a device, or B, the released source for a device. Uh, Unfortunately, in our world, we have to do it both ways, because sometimes we'll get source without a device attached, or sometimes we'll get device without source attached. So either A, you're pulling the device information and parsing your device source from the device itself, or B, if source is provided, you're using that along with AOSP in order to compile Android with all the device house, vendors, uh, info, every, all the information for that device in place so that it works out of the box.
2: All right, so before we dive into the intricacies and the many ways that you got to fill in the gaps for yourself, I kind of wanted to start with a golden example of like what's an example of where everything's done right, you basically have to just follow the step-by-step instructions that are listed. You don't have to go digging for something somewhere else. And I'm sure obviously wow. the the example would be like Pixel, right? If you want to Absolutely. do a ring up on Pixel, everything is handed down for you like can you mention some of the things that Google does to make device bring ups significantly easier? And then we'll start from there and like talk about, you know, where others kind of struggle to meet those needs.
1: Can we start with uh, Git attribution. Google sure. adds and uses proper Git attribution. So when you look at the device tree, every change that has potentially been made in the past is still intact within that Git history. This includes things that have been added and taken away or support that has yet to be added can be found on their Git or their Garrett. This is a great tool that we don't see too often being used properly across the web. So even in the open source world, everybody has a problem with proper Git attribution. If you get a BSP, sometimes they come in a tarball and Git attribution is not attached. So we don't know what changes they were made to the device source tree. And when they were made. So this is our number one and most important thing that I like to see when I'm doing a device bring up. And Google does provide this hands
0: over hands better than anybody I've seen. Those who are maybe not quite as technical, just to give you an anecdote, there you could essentially think of this as versions of revisions of a document, and then every change that has been made is documented and assigned to whoever or whatever whoever was responsible for that change, why they made it. Hopefully they have comments explaining why they did those things. And context is obviously immensely helpful in any kind of project.
2: Right. And Google provides you all of that versus like with any off the shelf device, you may get the document, but you may not get its revision history, or you might not even get the document at all. And you have to go digging and like begging for the OEM or the ODM who made it, who actually developed the software to release it to you. Or if they do release it, it's broken and you can't actually compile it or use it. What do you do then? You just have to keep begging and asking for more releases. So like there's all sorts of things where this can go wrong, but like a proper version, not just a tarball, which is basically just an archive of the kernel files, but the actual Git repository that they were themselves are probably working on having access to that. So you can see everything that David just mentioned is immensely helpful.
1: And uh, just to add context, uh, most of the technology being released is not being followed through with what Google does for Git attribution. For example, the kernel source, I think it was Xiaomi. That was having trouble, or maybe a different company that was having a hard time producing kernel source for a device. And uh, one of the Twitter people, uh, Sexy Cyborg, made a video of her going into the place and requesting the kernel source from the developer. It was like a week long ordeal she compiled into one video but sometimes it takes all that just to get what we should have on every device release.
0: Yeah, and I mean if you've been involved in the Android community obviously kernel source is a raging war that never ends with especially the customization community. Companies like Motorola are infamous for just yes. lagging behind on things like this and I know Xiaomi like you mentioned they just stopped releasing kernel source a lot from what <laughs> I understand.
2: So to be yeah. fair, like a lot of OEMs either As I mentioned, don't release it at all. Release it months late or in a half-broken state. And there are a few golden childs who do everything really well, like Google, of course. But, of course, if if you're going with off-the-shelf hardware from a lesser-known brand, then chances are you might not ever get the kernel source. And what happens if you don't have a kernel source? What happens if all you have access to is the precompiled kernel binary that ships on the device? What can you do with that? If anything,
1: you can actually pull that pre compiled kernel and use it as a uh, pre built kernel within the device tree. That allows us to deal with the lack of responsibility from OEMs and actually still make it work.
3: <laughs> that comes at the cost of not being able to make any necessary kernel changes, right? So if you're starting with Android 12 and you have an Android 12 kernel from the ODM or OEM, you're probably fine for Android 12. but As soon as Android 13 comes along and you want to do a bring up of that, chances are you need to make kernel changes and well, you don't have the source to make those changes. So now you're stuck. And some very smart people in the community have figured out ways to essentially reverse engineer and figure out, they'll they'll take the kernel source from a very similar device, probably running the same chipset if possible from the same manufacturer, but that's not always possible. And just figure out what needs to be done to add changes on top of that and make it boot on a device. And it always impresses me when I see things like that, because that's just dedication to the craft.
0: Well, it's like it kind of reminds me of like it's the Chevy small block of basically there had to be devices that were especially popular to use is basically a kernel source, right? Like over the years? Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, and the other part of it is you you could be working with a weird combination of vendors where it could be an unsupported OEM who doesn't want to release sources, but they could be running a Qualcomm chip in there, which Qualcomm is very, one of the most open source friendly chip vendors for Android. And so you have generic Qualcomm sources that are just out there and available. Mm -hmm. So you have something to start from right? That's usually the best case scenario when it comes to unsupportive and no source situations. Um, With those, you can
1: just run a diff and grab what you're missing pretty much and then have that as a handful of one or two commits to add on top of that specific device.
3: Right. So that's exactly what I was saying, which is you have a foundation and that foundation is really what makes all the difference. And you'll notice that devices with not much support are typically devices that don't have open source support from the chip vendor themselves, right? And so, I mean, you can look at this as a bunch of layers, right? Where the real original source comes from the chip vendor, Qualcomm or MediaTek or Rockchip or whoever will build a new chip and they will have a generic set of what we call board support package, right? BSP is just a bunch of files that you need to add on top of Android to make Android work on that particular chip. Now this is generic Android. There's no modifications other than hardware support stuff added. And then this is what gets handed out to ODMs, OEMs, and everyone else who uses that chip. And they add their own sauce on top of that. And at one point, it becomes barely recognizable. But you do know that under the hood, it's that original basic bare bones BSP that came from the chip vendor that's being used. So if you have that, you have something to work with.
0: And I guess the context here of why this makes things difficult is that you then have to learn everything and more that the OEM and ODM did as part of their bring up. So you're not only repeating the process, you're doing it with less information than they
3: had. Absolutely. And and a lot of times, like I mean, I, I say Qualcomm is a good example, right? But even Qualcomm, and rightfully so, they don't actually have fully open source binaries. There are still closed source proprietary binaries where they have their own secret sauce and their I mean it makes sense. ISP, GPU, exactly things like, that. things like that. So especially when you're dealing with an end of life device or an end of life chipset, you don't have updates to those binaries. Even with supportive situations like that, you still have to do some hacking to get stuff working. <laughs> Yeah.
0: And I think without getting us too far off track, that's part of why we're seeing Google try to modularize Android more so that we can start updating these things standalone and stop basically like making everything beholden to BSP version. And that was
1: their goal for Project Treble or Treble support when they introduced that into, uh, I think Android 9 was the first introduction for it. Um, That made it separated kind of. Where we had a vendor partition that would contain all the device information, ODM stuff, and that would be static. That would only be updated by the vendor, and then everything else around it, the system partition, product, system extended, etc would all be updated by the OEM or Google, the source for Android. So that made it kind of simpler for some forward ports, but a little bit less simpler because we still have to pull that vendor image, parse it figure out what all is added to it. And if we plan on doing anything with it, it has to be mostly private, unfortunately.
3: And things are moving in a good direction too, right? So now Google has the generic kernel image concept. Where that would come in handy is in the future, where most devices do come with GKI support, which Google enforces, you wouldn't even need the kernel sources, which technically you're supposed to get, but a lot of times you don't get, as we talked about earlier. You could still run a generic kernel image off of your device that's running the OEM specific kernel image and so get it working and so now you have the ability to switch out everything on your device to generic versions and just swap out the entire operating system basically without any help from the OEM or OEM I think that's the ideal goal that Google is aspiring towards and seems like we're getting there right
0: and you know just Again, is a like kind of very high level check. This also assumes that you can get into the device, which is a big assumption we have to make for any of this, right? So you may either need cooperation, an existing exploit, or something else. Which I don't, not sure what other routes there would be.
3: Well, there's a few ways, right? So at least in a professional space, when it comes to Android devices and building AOSP you have two situations. One is where you have the BSP, the whole package that the ODM uses themselves or gives out to other people who need it, right? In that situation, the images you build and the output really is something that you can term as a whole package, meaning like the entire operating system files, including stuff outside of Android that is needed by Android, but it's technically not Android. It's not and a full Im-
0: system image. Right,
3: basically. bootloader and other in the device, you have all of that and you will basically use whatever flashing process that the chip vendor has determined for their board to flash. it. And at that point, you're acting like the ODM, right? You're doing what they would do in the factory. And so that's a more clean process, but in the community and as a consumer, you don't really get access to that with any OEM really, right? And so at that point, you're working with AOSP and you're working with whatever sources they've dropped and you're just building what you need to swap out and bring it up to a new version of Android or update whatever you need to update and leave those other auxiliary partitions just untouched. So there's like two levels to this.
2: We briefly touched upon Project Treble before jumping into generic kernel image and then you know this topic, but I kind of wanted to step back and focus more on Project Treble because it's such an important part of what makes device bringups pre-Treble versus post-Treble so different. So I wanted to ask you, can you explain how a device bring-up differs before Product Treble is introduced versus after it was introduced? Like, what is the fundamental differences?
1: Pre-Treble, everything was pretty much built into system as root. So all of your device information, all of the vendor applications were all included in one system partition on the device. Post-Treble, all of that is separated into a system, a product, a system extended, and a vendor partition, where you have access to all the separate parts, but they're mounted within the system a little bit differently and separated on the device themselves. So when we update on a Project Treble device, we're only updating the system partition and possibly product, uh, vendor, system extended as well from the actual OEM or the vendor. That leads it to where they can do security updates much faster without having to rebuild everything they've added previously on top of a brand new security release on XLSP. They can easily add those patches into the system and it's all kept separate.
2: When Google introduced Treble, when they decided to strip the vendor-specific hardware abstraction layers from the system image into its own dedicated vendor partition, they also defined an interface, a standard interface between the vendor partition and the Android operating system. So to allow the OS to communicate with those hardware abstraction layers in a standardized way, and they call that the vendor interface. I wanted to ask you, like, can you talk a bit about this vendor interface and how its introduction affected device bring-ups?
1: Well, there were two ways the vendor interface was added. It was uh, added either A, through the vendor image that the hardware vendor would create. And that would contain all of the added files that they needed for HIDL interfacing. It would also contain some of the information that they need for external apps that they're adding onto the system and services as well. They also introduced the VNDK interface, and that is pretty much where all the hardware interaction goes. So... Anything that goes through VNDK has to be certified pretty much to work with their device interface. I don't have too much experience working with the VNDK. Maybe Nikhil does.
3: The VNDK is less talked about aspect of Treble. You know, when we say Treble, talk about Project Treble, typically you talk about how things are separated between system and vendor. But part of that separation was Google defined that interface, like you said, right? And VNDK is an important part of it. VNDK, by the way, stands for Vendor Native Development Kit. And what it basically does is it gives these ODMs and chipset vendors a standardized way to define their HALs and their hardware support libraries. And what it also does is it enforces backwards compatibility, right? So if you have a vendor that was for Android 9, then by Google's compatibility definition, you would have to make sure that that vendor is forward compatible up to three versions, I think, of Android. So that means you could use that same vendor and a system image from Android 12, say, and it would work perfectly fine and they have to work well together. And this is the sort of rules that Google is setting that makes device bring easier. So if you have a device that doesn't get updated that often, it's running on Android 10 and you want to run Android 13 on it, you don't really have to mess with the vendor layer at all maybe perhaps slight modifications depending on device-specific quirks. But for the most part, you can leave that vendor part untouched and work on the upper layer, so to speak. And, and that really is the beauty of Treble is there's definitions now and there's standardization of this communication between system and vendor.
0: And I guess this is a good way to describe that, really how the hardware abstracts itself to software and says, I can do this, I can do that. And here's how you call that. essentially. Like the camera can zoom, therefore you should have a hook in here for your vendor specific camera implementation if you have a special one for zoom. Not to get into Google or Android camera APIs because that's a whole other thing, but in general, conceptually, is that kind of the way that works?
3: Right. And it doesn't really block manufacturers or Google from implementing new things. It just makes sure that when you do implement new things, you have to make sure that it doesn't break compatibility with the older versions of the VNDK. Right. So that's why you see, I think if you're in the Android community now, newer versions of Android, especially like custom ROMs, are dropping much sooner. It's because they don't really have to spend, that's really where most of the time is, right? Because the vendor layer and the HALs and the hardware support stuff, that's where all the IP is. That's where you have the least source code access. And so that's where you have to do the most hacks. And the hacks are usually trial and error and usually take a lot of time. And people who do this for free in their free time tend to not have much free time. That's really what helped things get better over the years, especially with Trouble, because you don't really have to do much anymore. For example, if you're waiting on OnePlus to drop their Android 13 builds, you can still get Android 13 as a custom ROM on your device while you wait for that Android 13. And when it does drop, you can have a newer build which uses that updated vendor that's more... Suited for Android
1: 13. A lot of times, that updated vendor will have updated firmware for the device, etc. So kernel image, that type of stuff. Technically, yeah, a generic system.
2: In the OnePlus example, with their recent devices, things are getting more complicated with the Google requirements freeze program. So a lot of modern flagship devices are now actually shipping older vendor software implementations that were built for an older release. So, for example, a device that launched with Android 12 that upgrades to Android 13 might still be using the same vendor software implementation that was developed for Android 12 when it upgrades. And that's a quirk of Google requirements freeze. We talked about that before, but I don't want to get into the exact nitty-gritty of that aspect right now. But I kind of want to touch upon a bit more on the genericization of the interface between the hardware extraction layers and the OS and why that's so important. So let's say pre-project treble, if you were to try to just flash an AOSP system image onto the device and have it boot up, if the OEM of that device had some custom hardware and they wrote their hardware abstraction layer in a non-standard way that AOSP wouldn't be able to interface with it, then when you boot up AOSP, that piece of hardware that that abstraction layer was written for just might not work or might just crash. So like if you had a camera and you were expecting it to boot up when you open up the AOSP camera app, you might just get nothing. You might see nothing at all. And that's obviously a huge problem because you're dealing with fundamental hardware components of a device that you would expect to work out of the box. But with Project Treble standardizing a lot of these base components and Google enforcing this through these vendor test suites, their their vendor interfaces, you know, all these things like the, the versions that OEMs have to follow. Like it ensures that if you take a modern Project Treble compatible device and you boot AOSP onto it chances are that at least almost all the basic hardware components will work. So, like, for example, we have a Lenovo Tab K10 that we all frequently use for work purposes, and that device shipped with Android 11 out of the box. I've been able to boot Android 12, 12L, Android 13 generic system images onto it, and all the hardware works. AOSP works perfectly for just fine. There's no issues with it at all, and that's thanks to Project Trouble.
3: And we're we're reaching a point where... You can't even tell the difference between a GSI and a dedicated image, right? So, unless your device has specific, like when it comes to OnePlus devices, they have that alert slider or they have the in display fingerprint sensor. Those are specific hardware choices that aren't really a part of AOSP or GSIs. But for a generic device like a Lenovo K10, it's a decent tablet that has everything you need. If you boot a GSI, it works. Every feature you want to work works. And so at this point, I mean, the sort of direction we're heading into is we will just have a Windows or Linux-like situation where you have a build of Android that drops that you can just install on any device and it more or less behaves the same except for, you know, hardware-specific works.
1: Let's talk about the difference there, though, with Windows, Linux, and Android. So on windows, it ships with monolithic kernel, a lot like Linux does well. So that contains all the device information, the drivers, the firmware for the drivers, etc. And hopefully 90% of that is detected upon a net or when it first boots up on windows, it detects a list of what's available, downloads, what it can after a connection is available. And then uh, pairs it up based on that. But with Android, it's a quite a bit different because it relies on what's on the device. None of that extra stuff is ever included on the Linux kernel that's set with Android, at least for most devices. If you're dealing with an Android x86 device, we did switch to a monolithic kernel. And it kind of pairs up hardware available using ModProbe. And if probe exists, mod probe this. If found, great, add it to the list. If not, great, ignore it and then continue booting when done. So it'll go through every potential connection in your device until it finds it all, just like Linux does and pairs it up with that device hardware. On Android, especially using Project Treble, it's a bit different because you have that product definition already set up. So it's going to be shipped with that product image, vendor image, and that's going to contain all the information they need to load the kernel, load the drivers, load any extra blobs and device hardware for those drivers, and then make the connections and then boot.
0: Probably philosophically, there are some really good reasons that Android ended up this way, aside from inheriting from Linux. But number one, Android was always designed to be ultra lightweight. And so yes. by being able to define the firmware image at a very high level, you can strip out everything that is unnecessary and have a super lightweight device, which was very important in early Android, especially. <laughs> you did not want bloat, everybody hated bloat. But I think the other side is probably that for Google, you know, this is a better way for them to pull the levers they want to controlling the ecosystem. They can do it very high up as opposed to genericizing, which they have been doing, and that's a harder problem to solve, right? It's a lot easier to make a rule and say, you vendor can do this, you vendor can't do that, rather than giving them a tool that says, okay, we can make this more flexible and adaptable, which is really what Treble, I think, was probably about.
2: This actually brings us back to the generic kernel image topic and the reason why Google went for that in the first place. Since, as you mentioned, Android devices... They generally ship with their device drivers on the device. Not everything is included in the Linux kernel, and if you just boot Linux onto an Android device, you can't expect everything to work. The problem is that a lot of open-source developers have been pushing for Android device makers and vendors for years to upstream your drivers, open-source your drivers, and submit them to Linux and let us take care of maintaining that. But that has never happened. That pushback, it, it just just didn't happen. No, it's, you know, there was no, it's
1: IP. No. All these de- device manufacturers right. want that IP to stay private. So but, I completely understand why.
2: Yeah, exactly. But like, then that becomes a problem because there's so much out of tree code, or there used to be so much out of tree code running on, you know, in the Linux kernel that ships on your average Android device. And so if device drivers aren't being upstreamed, then it kind of limits the longevity of those devices, the ability to upgrade those kernels and implement security patches because there's so much of a difference between the kernel that ships on a device and the upstream Linux kernel that a lot of work has to be done to manage those merges so what Google decided to do is that okay we'll let you keep your kernel drivers closed source but instead you have got to ship it as a kernel module that interacts with the generic kernel image and in it has a standardized to be a way
1: specifically built kernel module that interfaces a specific way using GKI
2: right so on a modern GKI device right now so like the boot image it has the, the generic kernel image. So as Nikhil mentioned, you can go literally go and download Google signed generic kernel image, and that's going to be the same kernel that ships on other GKI devices. But what actually enables the kernel to talk to the device-specific hardware is those kernel modules that are specific to that device, and that's contained on a separate partition from right. the boot partition. And
1: that's automatically detected and loaded as soon as Android Zygote loads on the boot to process.
3: It's interesting to see how we got here, though, right? So you were kind of touching on that, David, but if you look at why Android is the way it is, I think fundamentally the goal with Android was to appeal to developers, right? So the architecture itself is designed to make sure that applications are easy to write, right? So for example, instead of having to interface with hardware directly like Linux, you have hardware abstraction layers. So your application doesn't have to change depending on how the hardware features are implemented per device. But that means device vendors have to put more time and effort into defining these hardware abstraction layers specific to their devices. And when they put in that effort, they don't want to put all that information out there for the world to see. So now you have people moving Mm -hmm. a lot of hardware-specific code from the kernel, where it would typically Mm -hmm. reside in a regular device, Two vendor binaries like blobs. Uh, So it's kind of a shell
0: game thing with their
3: encouragement. Yeah, it really is. And so now you have the idea of close source as much as possible with like minimal changes to the kernel, which makes Android as an OS very highly device specific. And so you don't have the concept of a generic well, you didn't have a concept of a generic OS image like you do with Windows or Linux. Yeah,
1: there is no one size fits all anymore. And I guess But there kind of is. There kind of is and there kind of isn't. You can't take a brand new device that has no information provided for it from the manufacturer and get it working like you can with Linux. Linux, you'd be able to take what we worked on this last HP desktop, for example. And the Linux kernel that has all that hardware, the monolithic kernel, and it'll automatically mod probe and look for any existing hardware. And I can probably get 90% of it working on a new device with a new chipset. That is not doable with Android anymore, though. And that's one of the downsides.
0: I mean, there's also kind of the business and partner model of Android is very different from like Microsoft and Windows, where Microsoft says you want to work on us, you got to talk to Windows Daddy and submit your driver for signing. <laughs> like, there's no other way. <laughs> like that's how you make things work on Windows. Whereas Android, there are so many vendors at so many different layers, and also you have vertically integrated vendors who are doing things that multiple vendors would otherwise be doing. Whereas with Windows, Microsoft had the clout and the authority to say you will build a Windows computer like this android and google they've had less authority i think until recently last but, or... how far
1: innovation's gone by letting yeah. the oems have that ability
0: totally with android yeah.
1: devices i mean we've gone three four times what windows was able to do
3: right
0: yeah and i think you know one of the where is going with this and i will stop after this is that smartphones come from a much more dedicated device mindset they come from telephones. Telephones did a very limited number of things. They just started doing more and more and more of them. And so the smarter telephones got, you need firmware on them, right? They got smart enough that you had to have an operating system on your telephone. And so they come from that world of, this is a device with a list of features that does these things. You rely on it for that. Windows comes from, this is a computer, you use it to make stuff. And I think that actually informed probably the way manufacturers look at firmware for these devices. They probably looked at, especially early on, as fixed in place. I make a product, it has firmware, it stays stable, which is in our world, something many people expect. But in the consumer world, especially when it comes to general computing devices, no, they expect they get better. And Android has started to do that with smartphones, obviously, but that's a pretty big sea change, I think.
2: Yeah. David, you mentioned that You know, if it's true that Google has less of an iron grip over AOSP and Android than Microsoft does over Windows, but they still do have a very sizable control, especially when it comes to requirements to getting new Android versions up and running or certified on an older device. So for example, like it's true that Google has genericized Android to the point where you can take an AOSP GSI for like Android 14, for example, and you could boot it on a device that originally launched with Android 12. But can you do that with Android 16? Maybe not because Google tends to only support backward compatibility for three letter upgrades. So like if you have a device that launches with Android 12, Google will make sure that Android 15 won't include any new requirements that break backward compatibility with Android devices all the way back to Android 12. But they don't guarantee any backward compatibility after that. It's generally just three letter upgrades. And you can kind of see this extended across everywhere. Like if you look up how long does Google provide security backport to AOSP? It's generally only three OS versions. So like right now, if you look on the security bulletin, they support backporting patches to Android 10 because that's three-letter upgrades before. But soon that'll stop once they launch Android 14. And this also goes into, it's not just becoming difficult to port a newer Android version. Sometimes they'll just drop entire features that you might depend on. So for example, I think Lineage, when they released their Android 12 builds, they had to drop a ton of older devices because... Those devices didn't have a Linux kernel version new enough to support eBPF, which is like the Berkeley packet filter feature, which is like a kernel feature that's used for like network filtering or firewalls and stuff like that. And so they had to drop a ton of devices because of that, because Android straight up acquired it for Android 12. And those older devices with older kernel kernels just couldn't support it.
3: It's interesting to look at Android as sort of a free market right? So you have Google trying to enforce it like the government with their GMS requirements and the compatibility definition document and whatnot. And then you have the whole AOSP space yeah. where <laughs> there's no laws. It's people doing whatever they want. ODMs, they don't have to follow any rules, right? And so how do you enforce the concept of a standard in such a space where essentially the goal is to cut as many corners as possible to a working device, And we talked about how Android is more rigid in terms of as an operating system. That really helped here, if you think about it, because what's the goal of an Android device, right? It should run all the Android apps that are available, right? right? So if apps don't work, then your device doesn't work. And so because apps rely on this nice layer of communication, the hows and the interface between the system and the hardware, you need to write that well enough where apps don't break. And so it's an interesting problem for Google to solve because they can only do so much in the AOSP space. And for an open source operating system with tons of people using and tons of vendors and tons of manufacturers, it seems like it's worked out almost as well as it could.
0: And I think to Google's credit, honestly, the fact that they seem to have the confidence that leaving AOSP out there is not something that's going to hurt them. It's something that the changes they make in proper Android are going to percolate basically into the way people use AOSP because guess what? The ecosystem is going to move in that direction. If you're Qualcomm or MediaTek or even Rockchip, you are going to encourage then ODMs and OEMs to do things because you have to do them. So there is definitely rising tides kind of effect sort of thing, you know, follow the leader. But yeah, I mean, AOSP obviously has led to so many different innovations like car OEMs build their infotainment on AOSP. And have for years because it was a much more reliable and lightweight way to to do it than building Linux. Like it was just like, oh, this is design work with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and all the other like kind of communication standards you would expect of a modern OS. And that is because Android was designed to be totally wireless, connect with all the standards it humanly can, and just generally be pretty flexible that way because Google wanted OEMs to
3: experiment. So I do. Not to mention the app ecosystem, right? right? They don't have to build anything. There's already a huge, probably the largest app ecosystem out there that you don't even have to go through Google certification to access, right? You just sideload an APK and you have YouTube running on your AOSP head unit in your car. I think the modularity and the openness of AOSP is why it's super popular today.
2: Well, just is a small caveat on that, a lot of apps will require your device to have GMS or Google Mobile Services in order to access the APIs provided through it. Our previous episode on Google Play Services covers that in detail if you want to learn more. And yeah, I also wanted to kind of caveat something I mentioned before. You know, I mentioned that Google makes it difficult to support new Android versions. They drop support for older features if they update their requirements after three letter up versions, but it's not impossible. Like David mentioned, the AOSP is a wild, wild west. You can do whatever you want. If you have the technical knowledge and expertise, you can bring up Android for as many versions as you want. If you have extensive Linux kernel experience... You could keep porting newer versions of Linux onto an older device. Like, it's not impossible. It's just really, really, really freaking hard.
1: You can also do both and backport Linux modularity from a monolithic kernel into a newer Android-type build. And this is a lot of what we see happening with our work here at Esper and elsewhere in the community for all, like Android x86, Project Waydroid, those types of projects.
3: Yeah. And with the community, you see these exceptional cases, right, where you have devices that were launched with Ice Cream Sandwich running Android 13 or and- Deli Bean running Android 13. It's, it's insane. And how these developers get Android, like a new version of Android came out 10 years after the last update was issued to that device, working as if it was built by the OEM. And that's the beauty of open source.
1: Hey, man, my HTC Hero was updated for like 10 years thanks to the community.
2: Oh, do you remember the HTC HD2? That legendary phone that would never die. Along
3: with the slide-out. different operating systems. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That was one of those that first came with Windows Mobile, I think, too.
3: Yep. The device I've worked with a lot, it was the Sony Xperia Z1. And oh, that beast was up. Uh, I think the last update Sony gave it was five point one. So Snapdragon eight hundred one, 800, 800 was, Wow. Yeah, 800. Okay. Yeah, the first cryo That's chip. Yeah. Uh, last I checked, it was Android twelve. Right. So from five to twelve, these people have been. Uh, I think I was involved all the way until Android ten, and then after that, other people have taken over and just uh, kept updating in Android eleven, Android twelve. In fact, the whole Sony platform is one of a great example of the community is coming together and just giving life to a legacy device
0: and you know this this kind of gets into the question of like why can't we extend android forever and i think one of the reasons is android unlike linux and windows does not run on devices that are like easily air gap from the internet. Android doesn't really work without the internet. Let's be real. An Android device without internet is kind of a brick, unless you want to use it as a word processor or calculator or something. That means though, you have to keep up with the internet. And that's like, Michelle, you bring up that part of Linux kernel for firewall, like packet handling. That is an example of things that you just like, well, somebody would have to build it and nobody's gonna do it. And that's just kind of part of the ever-evolving nature of connected and cloud technology. If your device can't talk to the systems that it needs to to do those things anymore, you get stuck. And that's what happened with the HTC Hero, I believe. Basically, it couldn't talk to the Google servers anymore to like get like Wi-Fi credentials, basically, so it wouldn't get a certificate. And you'd have to connect it via an Ethernet cable over USB, OTG. And even then, that didn't really work right. Like we had Ryan, one of our editors, try to do this at AP. And it was just a nightmare to try to even get this phone to load Gmail. (laughs) But yeah, it's different than a Windows computer. You can buy a 20-year-old Windows computer, open up Internet Explorer, and probably get parts of the Internet to mostly load or download Chrome, whatever, you know? Well, I think we are at about time. This was a wonderful chat about, you know, I mean, I learned a lot in the last hour, quite frankly, about the practicalities of building AOSP, which is really at Esper what we do on a daily basis. Big things that run what you wouldn't probably, Google wouldn't call Android, but that for everybody else's purposes, yeah, they run Android. And there are some things that you do have to change. You know, John um, works on our x86 foundation product. And obviously that is so unusual in the world of Android. We and it does things-
1: use a monolithic kernel. So that's the project that melds everything together in some mashup quality.
0: Yeah, so and I had no best idea. Best of Linux, <laughs>
1: best of Android, and we make it work.
0: Peanut butter and jelly. So if you are interested in learning about building from AOSP and like what it takes to make a device or to make a device work the way you want, come talk to us, esper.io.
2: All right, thanks, David. And thank you, John and Nikhil, for joining us. And uh, we do this with all our guests. We wanted to ask you now, like, where can people follow you if they want to follow your work online or see where you tweet or
3: do whatever?
1: I'm on Twitter for the most part. So Twitter at E-L-E-C-T-R-I-K-J-E-S-U-S.
3: And I'm not on Twitter. So <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, <laughs> where can you follow me? I don't know. GitHub. Yeah, I was going to say. That. <laughs> <laughs> There's that,
1: too. I'm also on GitHub. Same place.
2: Well, maybe it's good that you're not on Twitter, because uh, it's a place where uh, Nuance it's goes to die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this show is a place where Nuance doesn't die. We love talking to experts every week or you know, every other week, kind of a regular schedule right now, about Android, AOSP, the whole ecosystem and platform. So thank you again, both of you, for joining us to talk about you know device bring-ups. And I hope those of you listening learned a thing or two about this. And if this sounds interesting to you, as David mentioned, come check us out at esper.io.
1: Now show some interest. We want to do more of these.